Welcome to Research Radio, Episode 13. Research Radio is a podcast series that brings evidence-informed child welfare research to life through interviews with leading researchers. This month, we speak with Dr. Joan Pennell, Professor of Social Work and Director of the Center of Family and Community Engagement at North Carolina State University, about her research on fathers assessing and managing their risk to children. I'm Dr. Joan Pennell, Professor of Social Work and Director of the Center for Family and Community Engagement at North Carolina State University. The center provides statewide training on how do you really engage with families, particularly around decision-making, but also more broadly, how do you promote safe, healthy, and productive families and communities. Can you give us a bit of information, like kind of background information about the role of fathers and families involved in child welfare? You've done quite a bit of work with women and families generally. I was wondering how has this informed your current research? When I uh, lived in Winnipeg, Manitoba, I became involved with Mama Wiwi Ichitata, which is uh, Ashinabe Family Violence Center, and I was asked to co-facilitate groups for women who had been abused by their partners. And an elder came to the group and gave us teachings on men and women walking side by side in equality. And what I learned from that was really about the importance of working with everyone within the family and think family very, very broadly. I'm not just talking about the immediate family, but that, of course, included the men as well. And my work up to then in terms of domestic violence and child maltreatment had primarily been with the women and the children. So when I lived in Toronto, I worked as a children's aid society worker. And when I was going around from household to household, I was working mainly with the mothers, but I kept finding that women were being abused by their partners or they were terrified of former partners. And that was helping me become much more aware of the extent of domestic violence and how it affected the lives of women and children. And from Toronto, I moved to St. John's, Newfoundland and became involved with the Women's Center there, providing some counseling, but also something I'm very proud of what we did was to start the first shelter for abused women and their children in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. And that taught me a lot about how the women felt, and especially because I was co-facilitating groups for women who had been abused, about the fears they had on leaving the shelter. And it wasn't around violence. It was around feeling so worried about being alone it helped me recognize all the more the importance of connections. I went back to the United States, got my doctorate, particularly looking at shelters for abused women and their children and how good practices for them. And then when I moved to Manitoba, eyes and ears were opened looking at these community-based approaches that I was learning from First Nations and Native people. When I returned to St. John's, I became involved with kind of pioneer effort on family group decision-making with deep-end family violence situations. And that was really about engaging a whole family and, again, think very extensive family, 
learning about the importance of including multiple generations and also including men and women, adults and children, in terms of coming up with good decisions. And we carried out this project in the Inuit community of Maine, Labrador, in a Francophone region of the island, and also in a mainly Irish-English capital city of St. John's, and found that in all these communities, the approach was well-received, but it kept teaching us over and over the importance of including the men. I knew that we still were not including the men to the extent that we needed to. We also were trying to figure out strategies on how to do this, so that the meetings could be safe without being exclusionary. And so learning about, yes, you always respect protective orders or restraining orders, but you also try to figure out ways to have the voices of all the family. All of this led me into becoming involved with a program called Strong Fathers, and that's what I wanted to particularly talk about today. Strong Fathers is a program for men with a history of committing domestic violence and who are referred by child welfare or in some cases by the court system. What this program does is it's helping to reach the men around creating safe and positive relationships with child and partners through reaching them through their caring about their children. What the group does very well is it helps raise their awareness that children who are exposed to domestic violence are harmed by it. And this is something that many of the men just were simply not aware of that. But the other really crucial part about the program is it's not just raising the men's awareness, but also giving them good strategies on how to relate with their children, and that spills over in good ways of relating with their partners. For instance, men who are accustomed to using coercive control uh, learn about praise. For many of the men, it's not something they grew up with, but when they tried it out, it just was so affirming. As one dad said, he'd never seen his little daughter smile so much before. As they learned things and realized that they were getting along better with their children, they felt proud of themselves, and it opened them changing how they're related with the mothers of their children. And the men themselves in weekly parenting logs record the progress that they've made when they encounter hard things to do, such as praise or learning about the impact of domestic violence. Their self-appraisals may take a dive, but that's good because they're learning to be critical of how they engage. And then as they learn skills, they find out that they work, then their appraisals of themselves go up. And we're not only in the evaluation looking at what the men have to say about their progress. We've also heard from the people that are facilitating the groups that they see the progress. We've learned community focus groups that they've seen progress. These focus groups included social workers from child welfare, people from the judiciary system, people from various domestic violence programs, and they're all talking about seeing a positive change with the men. In addition, what we've done is look at what we call the central registry, and that is the state data banks in which social workers' assessments of child maltreatment are sent into. So that would include their following up on reports of child maltreatment, risk assessments, their findings in regards to whether children have been maltreated, 
in reviewing all of that data, what I found is that before the men enroll in the group, there's a significant amount of reporting of the men's families to child welfare and findings that uh, children are in need of protection. Then when I've looked at the post-enrollment data, I see an extensive drop in terms of maltreatment. And also, I saw the same thing happening with household domestic violence, a precipitous drop from that. So everything has come together in terms of supporting that the men can make progress, but I do think it's really crucial that they're given strategies on how to do this after their awareness is raised. You have such a rich practice history. You have the Canadian experience as well. Current research is informed really by all of that. You are gathering the men's perspectives about how they're feeling during this Strong Fathers program, but you're also gathering evidence from throughout the community, and that's a very interesting approach. I was wondering if you would be able to talk a little bit more about the study's findings and maybe about the methodology a little bit as well, like how you conducted the study and how that led to what you found. One of the things I know that we did right, and I give credit to the folks who developed the curriculum on this, the Center for Child and Family Health, they are based in Durham. They're a consortium of three universities, Duke University, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and North Carolina Central University. They are a national childhood trauma center and very much have brought in their understanding of childhood trauma in the development of the curriculum. The lead organization, and they uh, started also the implementation of it, is the Family Services Inc. in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Safe Relationships Division that has conducted the groups. They, and I think this is important to realize that and acknowledge, is that they provide services to shelter services. They provide groups for abused women. They provide supports for children. They also facilitate the better intervention programs, and they took on this fathering program. Beyond that, their organization provides a whole lot of additional supports for families. The facilitators of the groups, both in Winston-Salem and then later in Durham, all of them have a really close understanding of the impact on children of domestic violence. They also understand about what it means to be working with men who abuse. So bringing that clear understanding, I think, has been very important to having groups where men can acknowledge and take accountability for what they're doing, but also what's really important is to take accountability for changing. It's a 20-week curriculum that starts with kind of intros and then moves into men connecting with their own childhood experiences, and so many of these men were exposed to Uh, domestic violence and or child maltreatment as children. And then from there, moving into identifying what domestic violence does to their own children and then into parenting strategies. Later in the group, they're also learning about how to ask for help, which does not come easy to many of the men, and about how to develop the resources. The participant satisfaction forms that the men complete at different points during the group all show that the men uh, really appreciate the group. Their main complaint is that 
the groups are not long enough and that they really want follow-up services. And we know the follow-up services is something that is lacking. And all this has to do with funding. The funding comes from the, this is U.S., Federal Violence Against Women Act. Originally, it went through the North Carolina Division of Social Services. It's now through the North Carolina Council on Women. The groups are now into their sixth year of operation. Now, in terms of the evaluation, one of the good things that was set up right within the curriculum is that it's what's called embedded evaluation. So the men are completing forms that are used for the evaluation. The weekly parenting logs is where they reflect back on their progress or non-progress over the past week and also other important things are they're setting goals for themselves for how they relate to their children and how they relate to the mothers of their children. There's also knowledge tests such as on child development and there's other tools that are used as well like looking at their challenges and relating to their children. So as they complete these forms, they don't just complete the forms, but they discuss them in the group and talk about what they need to continue to maintain their progress. Also, the people who facilitate the groups, very highly skilled, they record their completion of the different modules and whether the modules fulfill their objectives. They also write up reflective notes on how the sessions went and what was helpful. And that's been very important in terms of continuing to refine the curriculum so that it's the most effective possible. Early in the group sessions, my center at North Carolina State University also did some interviews with mothers of the children. None of the women indicated that they or the children were worse off because of the group, and that's always something to keep an eye out for. And a number of the mothers identified positive gains that their former partners or current partners had made. And as one mother said, her husband just hadn't had the tools before to know how to relate to his children and saw some very good progress that he had made. So those are important aspects about the evaluation. In terms of the state data, one of the things that you always have to be very careful about with any of this information, whether it's the forms completed by the men or the state data on child maltreatment, is to make sure that the materials are carefully safeguarded. So at the university, we make sure that all data is very securely stored and that, that the material is sent to us in a, without names of people on it. In terms of our findings, one is that the men do have a significant increase in terms of their knowledge of child development. Another, which I think is really important, is that not all, but most fathers can identify in their one of the forms that asks about the impact of domestic violence on children. Most fathers can identify an impact and then uh, when they're asked to set goals for themselves, for relating to their children, relating with their mothers, these are positive goals that relate to caregiving, setting a good example as a father and as a partner for their children. Also, not surprisingly, the men, quite a number of these men are unemployed or have low employment, so they're wanting to increase their abilities as breadwinners. And then the fourth area is that men who really persevere with the group, they're also setting goals to reclaim their sense of personhood. And they may tap into their religious beliefs on that, 
or just how they, they want to be as a person in this world. In terms of the group, about 60% of the men complete the group defined as uh, completing 65% of the 20 sessions. And the men who complete it really have, to, at the beginning, uh, there's resistance to being in the group. But what the men can acknowledge is their lack of patience in terms of relating to their children and to their partners or former partners. They will not use the word being abusive, but they will talk about lack of patience. And then if they get over the first hurdle in the group, they then start talking about how they have to really force themselves to learn new skills that do not come easily. And there's a real determination. And then they move into the stage on really in turning around how they relate to their children. Always a struggle. And many of these men live outside of the homes where their children live and are separated from their former partners, the children's mothers. But as they learn these skills, it, it gives them an increased sense of what they can do as a father. And then if they persevere with that, they're able to go into the phase that I call before reclaiming personhood. But this is also where they're changing around how they relate to the women in their lives. How are the men recruited or invited to the program? Most of the men are referred by their child welfare workers. About 60% of the men are African-American in background, and about 30% are white, non-Latino, and then about 10% are other groups. And what we've found, and by the way, I should say up front, one of the important things about facilitation of the groups is that they are co-facilitated. Always there's been an African-American co-facilitator, which I think has been very important culturally in creating more comfortable forum. And it also has been important for retaining men of African-American heritage. And if you look at groups for better intervention groups, often if you have African-Americans in groups that are predominantly white, they are much less likely to stay with the group. And so these groups, they're not usually in a minority, and they also have a, a leadership example that's very helpful. Most of the groups are also co-facilitated by a man and a woman, which has been an important in terms of the men being good examples of how men and women can work together. The other part is that women facilitators can pick up on some of the ways the men might choose to act in a disrespectful way with women, and they can challenge that but often the male facilitator will pick up on it, too. And do you know of anywhere else that uses this program? Because you're getting a lot of positive feedback. In terms of the Strong Fathers program in North Carolina, it is expanding into some other counties. We were, and I just want to give a shout-out to them, uh, the folks at the University of Toronto, Katrina Scott and company have a program called Caring Dad, and so this program, Strong Fathers, has definitely benefited from the experience in Ontario with uh, the Caring Dads program. They're not exactly alike, but there's both of them focused on both at the same time the issues of domestic violence, ways of improving parenting, and under an underlying assumption is that the men may not initially be willing to relearn how they relate to women, but with some men, and I certainly do not assume this for all men, 
they are willing for the sakes of their children to start learning new ways of relating with family members. And for some then, that is a way of reaching them. Now, in both of these programs, we had at the beginning talked with child welfare workers about who to screen out. Child welfare workers did not want men with a history of committing child sexual abuse to be referred to the group. And the designers of the program in Durham did not want to have men who had restraining orders prohibiting them from contact with the children to be referred to the group. By the way, if there are restraining orders against contact with the mothers of the children or his former partners, this was not a reason for screening them out because often the men continue to have contact with the children or in other, you know, arrangements where they were uh, living with another woman and her children. The social workers were less concerned about the restraining order in terms of contact with the children because their view was that eventually the men would be back in contact with the children so it would be better if they learned how to relate to their children. The people that created uh, the curriculum did want this criterion because uh, they wanted the dads to be able to practice some of the skills and saw that as quite crucial. The other thing is that if the men really seem like they belong right now in a better intervention program, they are referred there. And so if there is a very uh, volatile situation, in Winston-Salem, the men are referred right away to the timeout group, the Better Intervention Program. You've already kind of hinted at some ways that the research has implications for practice. And, I mean, obviously there's lots of opportunities for kind of creative work to be done by individual practitioners as they work with fathers. But kind of the last area that I was going to ask you about is if you have any other ideas, tangible advice, if you will, for practitioners on how to benefit from this understanding of just the ways to support fathers in positively relating to their children and to their partners? I know in Ontario and in Manitoba, um, there has been quite a focus on family group uh, conferencing or family team meetings uh, where you engage uh, the family in um, decision-making. And one of the good spillover effects of the strong fathers has been that as the men learn how to communicate in the group, they also then communicate much better in these family uh, meeting forums. And so I think we do need to think about, um, and I'm someone who's been very involved with uh, family group conferencing. I know that uh, family members need preparation before they uh, come into the uh, conferences. What I'm also, though, found is that having a group setting in which the men are really learning these communication skills uh, can be very helpful to them. And what we've so often done in both Canada and the United States is we've focused on the mothers uh, not paying attention to the men, uh, in part because the mothers are more readily accessible, uh, particularly if there's been uh, domestic violence. Uh, workers may worry about engaging with the dads, whether for the mother's safety or for the worker's own safety or the children's safety. And the difficulty with that, of course, is that 
the men continue to be in contact with the children. And what the men in our group have, the different groups with strong fathers have said, is that until they joined strong fathers, no one was helping them figure out how to be a good father. And so, uh, you know, a clear message is we need to pay attention to the dads too. And often so many of these fathers don't have uh, much in the way of parenting skills, but it doesn't mean that they can't learn them. That's so true. And I think other research has shown us that as well. If we just take the time to listen and ask questions, especially of fathers, that, that that can even itself just make a big difference. So this is amazing, Jones. You brought it all together in terms of the father's insight and experience, practice experience of yourself and other practitioners. You brought other research and included references to the Canadian context. So I think that our practitioners will really find this helpful and easily applicable to their practice. Having first practice social work in Canada was, well, I got my MSW at Dalhousie University. And what I didn't realize is that I learned about social work within a, a much stronger social network than what we have in the United States. So if you just think about national health care, that provides a foundation in Canada that we so much struggle with in the United States. And to know that families will get the health care that they need is so important. All these relationships between providing people with support so that they can have just healthy and safe families. So I've, I've learned a lot from Canada, and I'm so happy to do this podcast because it's a little way in which I can give back to Canada. You have been listening to Research Radio, Episode 13, a conversation with Dr. Joan Pennell. Research Radio is produced by Practice and Research Together, a membership-based organization that promotes the understanding and use of evidence-informed practice at all levels of the child welfare system. For more information about this episode's topic, Research Radio, or Practice and Research Together, please visit www.parkcanada.org. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at PartEIP. That's P-A-R-T-E-I-P. Thanks for listening.